Thanks, you guys. So good being here. Yeah, so Sex Idol, uh, it is not an autobiography, so no. <laughs> um, so I remember being in second grade, and I was over at my best friend Elijah's house, and Elijah was like, dude, you'll never believe it. We got a trampoline. And I was like, oh, sweet. Let's go use it. I loved trampolines. So we began running through. It was a big house. We began running through his house, looking at all the rooms for its kind of blue matted border that black interior net, the short stuffy legs, like I loved jumping and bouncing on trampolines. And we were looking all over and it wasn't showing up. And so I was like, Eli, where is it? Did someone misplace it or something? He's like, no, I, I just haven't found it yet. And so we kept looking at other rooms and um, I'm like, begin to dawn on me, like, Eli, have you seen this trampoline before? He's like, no, I've never seen the trampoline. So, oh, well, how do you know it's there? You, you know, how do you know it exists if you haven't seen it? And he's like, well, I'm just keep following. We keep looking around. I'm like, dude, what evidence do you have that this trampoline exists? Well, they moved into this new house, and he says, well, and began to learn the geography. His bedroom was down directly beneath his parents' master bedroom upstairs. So he said, every night, my parents pull it out, and they bounce around on it. But then when I go and look for it the next day, it's gone. So I don't know where it is. But <laughs> we were enchanted by this great mystery of the trampoline. <laughs> the trampoline. <laughs> well, <laughs> as the years went on and we grew older, we began to uncover more about this great mystery of the trampoline, right? And uh, yes, we learned it was fun, and yes, something you could take flight, uh, you know, but more than that, that <laughs> in this mystery of the trampoline, it held in its mystery a secret to the history of where we'd come from, and not only that, where we're going. And so tonight, I want to talk about the trampoline, right? All right, so <clears throat> sex can either be an icon or an idol, either a window that we look through that gives us a glimpse into the glory and goodness of God, or a mirror that reflects back the selfishness and brokenness and destruction, right? I'm going to set my timer here really quick so I can get long-winded and make sure I don't go too long here. Let's see here. That is the central theme, or the next three weeks is kind of a guiding theme. What I want to try and do tonight is set up some of a positive vision, just one angle on a positive vision of this idea of sex as an icon, as a window into something greater. And then the next two weeks, we'll kind of look at maybe how that positive framing helps shed light on some tough topics and conversations around sexuality in our culture today. But for starters, what do I mean by an icon? Well, historically, uh, icons were meant not so much to be looked at as to be looked through. And here's an example of what I mean. This is uh, one of the most famous icons in church history, a Christ Pantocrator. And if you take a look at it, uh, you might notice at first that uh, features, it looks a little strange. Jesus' face looks a little weird. You'll notice his face seems kind of contorted and strange. Um, and uh, you would be right. The left side, if you notice, uh, his eye looks more... Um, Left, yeah, left side. His eye looks more soft, peaceful, like the gaze of a shepherd. His lips are kind of more pursed. It's a more gentle look. He's holding the sign of peace in his hands. Now, you look on the right side, and it's kind of a sterner look. His eye is kind of bold and glaring, and he's holding a book of the Gospels. There's a sense of uh, he comes with judgment as well. Right? And this contrast is even more pronounced in someone has taken kind of these two halves of the image and mirrored them into a whole. And you can kind of ask, like, well, what's up? Did Jesus, you know, was he just unable to hold his pose? You know, like, 
uh, would, would the artist make a mistake? And no, the contrast is actually intentional. The idea is this is not intended to be like a driver's license, like a photo ID that Jesus pulls out when he gets pulled over. And like, you know, it's not like an Instagram selfie of his you know, snazzy new haircut for the masses, right? Uh, the idea is not to be a literal depiction of what Jesus looks like, but rather a window into a greater truth. And here the idea is that Jesus holds perfectly together both love and justice in his identity. The idea is that we not just look at it for a literal depiction of Jesus, that we look through it in a sense to this, as this window into a greater truth about who Christ is. And I'd suggest that similarly, God has created uh, sex, this union of uh, a man and a woman together, and at first glance, the image can look a little con- clumsy or contorted or strange, these two halves that don't seem to quite match perfectly and uh, what's going on there. And yet, I suggest to you that there's something more going on here than two, you know, after prom, people trying to figure it out in the backseat, whatever, right? Like, there's something actually more profound that God has invested in this that's intended to actually be a sacred window into greater realities. So Paul, in Ephesians 5, verse 32, he says, um, he's talking about sex, he says, this is a great mystery. And the phrase he uses is actually mega mysterion. He says, he's talking about sex. Sex is a mega mystery. It's a massive mystery. Well, what is it that's so mysterious about it? He goes on to explain is that it refers to Christ and the church. It's speaking of Christ and the church. That uh, sex, something that we are fascinated with in our culture, something that we talk a lot about, all our, you know, half our pop songs seem to be written about it, our romance novels, like our culture is obsessed with sex, and Paul's going to actually, there's something that God has embedded in this, it's a window into the nature of the gospel, the mystery of Christ and his union with the church. Well, so I want to look tonight at this uh, idea of sex being an icon that Paul's saying here, it's an icon, it's a window into the nature of salvation, relationship with Christ as his church. But if we step back, I want to start tonight with something else that Scripture also frames it as a window into you, and that's also the structure of creation, the nature of the world that we live in. Uh, when we look in Genesis 1, we find that sex is a window into the structure of creation. And there's something beautiful and powerful here. So the very beginning, first line of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God creates heaven and earth. And sometimes we think of heaven and earth, we can kind of think of those as two disconnected, separate realities, like heaven's somewhere we go when we die, and earth's just this place we live now. Uh, But no, in the biblical story, heaven and earth are actually made with and for one another, together as a complementary pair. In the words of a theologian, N.T. Wright, he describes them as twin interlocking spheres designed to go together. So God creates heaven and earth, and this is not the only pair he creates. Genesis 1 is actually structured by these three complementary pairs, heaven and earth, land and sea, night and day. And so the first three days, God creates these different pairs, and the second three days, he fills them. And so they kind of structure creation, you could say. And within the structure of creation, this sets the stage at the end of Genesis 1 for the man and the woman that come at the climax of the creation account. God creates the man and woman in his own image together. And there is something here to uh, these complementary pairs that are made with one another and for one another, and that man and woman together are designed to be this window, like this icon into the structure of creation 
in our world. And there's something profound when we realize, too, that within these pairs made with and for one another, the most beautiful moments in creation are the spaces where the two become one. Let's take a moment and talk about what I mean. Uh, The space where the two become one. Let's start with the land and the sea. Um, When you think about the space where the land and the sea come together, uh, there is perhaps no more uh, majestic place that we love to go than the beach. Uh, There's a philosopher, Peter Kreeft, who observes on this. He observes the shore is the most popular place on earth. Waterfront property is the most expensive property anywhere in the world because that's where the sea and the land meet. That's where man and woman meet. Land without the sea, it's kind of boring, desert. The sea without the land is kind of boring. When are we going to land the ship? But the place where they meet, that's where all the action is, and that's where we want to be. Kreeft is pointing to something, that there's something majestic about the coast, right? Um, now, I, you can push back a little bit on I think there is a romantic beauty to the desert that we experience here in the Southwest, that it has a majesty all its own, and uh, sailors write sonnets about the glory of the ocean and just how beautiful it is on its own. But I think he's onto something when he says there's something majestic and powerful about these spaces where the two become one. <clears throat> we shell out top dollar for the oceanfront view. Right? Like whether on the sun-kissed beaches of California or the resort in Thailand or off the rocky coasts of Ireland, the aesthetic is magnetic when these two come together. And this magic works on smaller scales as well, like the coast, the beach. This is just kind of where the colossal continents meet their tectonic match with oceanic bodies of water, kind of this grandiose scale. But on smaller scales as well, we find that cities spring up along rivers. Cabins get built around lakes. Oases are the places the thirsty travelers look for in the desert, the places where soil and stream collide. Where land and sea, where water and soil, where they come together, it's a place where life can emerge. And it's not only life that emerges here, um, but also beauty. When you think about when river and rock come together, uh, some of the most beautiful formations in creation are here. Uh, what, are, what is a canyon, like the Grand Canyon, but rock carved out by water? And what are waterfalls but water traversing rock? Uh, author Brett McCracken observes... Oh, I missed that one. Oh, yeah, quotes here, sorry. Uh, author Brett McCracken observes, uh, Water and rock together are nature's most beautiful artistic pairing. Water can erode and mold and smooth rock. Rock can guide and contain and filter water. The wrestles are necessary and good, and they create beauty. Where the glaciers are cascades, snow-capped mountains are geysers, the places where water and rock meet are where painters, photographers, tourists, and lovers flock. This is holy space. The place where these two become one is a space where uh, beauty erupts and life can emerge. And we are drawn to the glory in those spaces, like there's something magnetic, an allure that we as humanity are drawn to. In the words of Kreeft again, it's the space where all the action is. All right, let's go on to the next pairing, night and day. Uh, This is another power combo where day is beautiful on its own. Most of life happens under the sun. Uh, Night is majestic. There's nothing like camping out under a blanket of stars. And yet, once again, there's something powerful about the moment when these two become one. Sunset and sunrise are some of the most, probably the most spellbinding popular moments of the day. 
so back home, we moved about a year and a half ago from Portland, and we lived at the base of Rocky Butte, kind of this um, Butte mountain, this small mountain in town. And I would often walk up during the day and just to kind of get some exercise. And when I go to the top during the day, there was a park at the top, and it was just completely empty all throughout the day. But you come back at sunset, and suddenly, like, the whole town came out. You know, you'd see lovers holding hands, parents watching their kids play, friends joking around. Uh, you'd smell the wafting smell of some substance that's now legal in Portland, you know. <laughs> but it's like the whole city came out for sunset, just the beauty of this moment where day and night collide. And I don't want this to sound crude, but I've come to think of sunsets as something almost like an, like an orgasm across the sky, this expression of delight when this diversity comes together in union. And if that can cause us today in our culture and our moment to flinch at first, I wonder whether that's because we have come to have a very pornified culture, like a, a, an understanding of sex in our culture that's become just the pornified pursuit of self-interested pleasure, rather than an image of a covenant pair made with and for one another in mutual embrace. And uh, to kind of quote from uh, part of the, the book here working on, but just how sunset is the moment when the sphere of energizing light penetrates the border of the horizon and sinks into the womb of darkness, erupting forth in a volcanic explosion of colors streaming across the sky like sparks of euphoria flying from lovers in ecstatic embrace. And the point here, if God has designed sex as a window into the structure of creation, the point is not so much to sexualize creation as rather to creationize sex, if you will. Right? Like to see it as framed by God within his architectural design for the structure of the world. Something that speaks to something bigger than itself speaks to God's holy design and the architecture of the very creation that we live in and move in and have our being in, that we are embedded in as a part of. Shakespeare saw the romance in Sunrise. You know, Romeo and Juliet, possibly the most uh, famous scene, a romance scene in all of Western literature history, and the climax is the balcony scene. And if you remember the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet, um, Shakespeare masterfully identifies Romeo with the night, right? Like he comes under the shadow of darkness, and he has been in love with Rosalind, who's identified with the language around the moon. Uh, but then Juliet, he identifies with the sun. And as uh, Romeo stands outside the balcony and sees Juliet arise, he says, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Shakespeare sets the context for possibly the most romantic scene image where the two come together as one and they pledge their love and their plans, they hatch their plans to marry. He sets it against the imagery of sunrise and the glory of these two pairs coming together um, to enter into union covenant together as one. Okay, well, let's now move to the third pair, heaven and earth. And here we come to the mountaintop. Now, throughout history, mountaintops have been seen as sacred space, place where heaven and earth connect. Um, ancient peoples uh, around the world saw it this way, a place where heaven and earth touch. Uh, but in the Bible, we see this as well. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. Uh, Moses meets God on Mount Sinai. Uh, Elijah throws down with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Garden of Eden, which 
household is located atop the mountain of God. That mountaintop space is often space that becomes holy space, a place where heaven and earth connect and collide. And we still look at it this way today. Like we look to the mountaintop experience as a, a site or a place of retreat, a place where we go to get perspective and clarity and the big picture uh, to get kind of the 50,000 foot view, clarity on life to encounter transcendence. Uh, the mountains are like Jimi Hendrix, right? Like they kiss the sky. This is a place where heaven and earth connect and collide. But in the Bible, this language of heaven and earth connecting and colliding, it's more than just the physical space of the mountaintop, that this actually becomes language that's much bigger and more significant, where the heavens become uh, a metaphor, an image of the space of God's presence, where God resides and dwells. And heaven touching earth, heaven colliding into earth, when Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's teaching us to pray for the invasion of God's space with our space, the union of life with God. The, the hope of the gospel is for this merger where the two become one. And when God's kingdom breaks into our lives, it is also it is a place where beauty emerges and where life erupts into the world. Place of beauty and of life. All right, well, so what does all this have to do with sex? I'd suggest everything, right? It is after uh, this scene, the first six days where God forms these pairs and fills these pairs. It's the climax of this, uh, these, these six days. Then God brings man and woman onto the scene. So God created the Adam. He created humanity, mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. God saves the best for last. Uh, this is the image of God poem, kind of the famous poem where now at the climax of Genesis 1, it bursts into poetry. And it's almost like up till now, God's been painting with large, broad, wide brushstrokes the canvas of creation. But now as he comes to the climax, it's like he pulls out a small-scale detail brush and paints us, man and woman, at the pinnacle of creation. And sometimes the smallest details are the most significant, right? Like an artist pays most attention to the detail of the, the furrow on the brow or the, you know, the shape of the smile, the lips that actually communicate like a central piece of the message. And even though man and woman, even though we're small, humanity, our size is outmatched by our importance. We are created to reign and rule with God in creation. And he creates us as well. It's diversity and union. These two who are able to become one. And it's through this union that we're going to be able to fill the earth and grow as a human social body. All right, well, so the climax of creation is this image of God poem. And uh, what do I mean here when I say that sex is an icon of creation? Sex is an icon of the structure of creation. Uh, what do I mean by sex? I mean two things. Uh, first off, what I mean by sex is um, something we maybe don't think of at first, just that we are male and female, like our sexed identity as male or female, as a man or woman, uh, that sex is not just something we do, it's someone we are, right? Like it's, it actually is something that speaks to the sacredness of our bodies. And this can raise controversial questions today around like uh, our gender and transgender uh, the transgender conversation, which um, we'll look at 
in week three a little more. But just to set the stage for now, I think just to say that part of one of the things that Genesis 1 is telling us is that our bodies are sacred. There's actually embedded in the design, there's something that is iconic, that speaks as a window into the structure of God's created world. There's something holy and beautiful and sacred and intricate that is actually intentional on the part of God. And it says, too, we don't need to um, have sex to bear the image. Uh, We are sexed as image bearers. And that's actually significant to our identity and our ability to reflect something of the nature of God to each other and into his world. Well, the second thing I mean here by sex is what most of us probably first think of, right? Like afternoon delight, right? Like it's not just a, a noun, but also a verb, right? And so uh, this ability of the two to become one flesh. It's kind of the biblical language in Genesis 2, that the two can become one flesh and that their union is also a window into the structure of the world. These complementary pairs made with and for one another. Right? To again quote uh, N.T. Wright, he observes how Uh, He's talking about Genesis 1 and the structure here. It says, The man and the woman together are a symbol of something which is profoundly true of creation as a whole. The coming together of male and female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. He's saying here that there's something significant here that sex is actually a window into a greater reality of God creating a world that has diversity in union, these pairs that are made with and for one another. And I believe sex speaks to the diversity and union of creation, both our sexed identity as male and female and uh, the ability uh, for us as male and female to come together as one, speaks to this theme of diversity and union. And this is significant for a whole bunch of reasons, right? Like this begins to go beyond just creation into the nature of the gospel itself. And here's what I mean. If you were to ask me, hey, Josh, what is the greatest hope the gospel brings to the world? I think I just might say diversity in union. Here's what I mean by that. If we go to Revelation 21:22, at the end of the biblical story, John is seeing this vision, and he sees uh, it's a wedding. So the context is a wedding. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? He sees uh, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared by God as a bride, beautifully dressed as a bride for her husband. So the context is a wedding. What do weddings celebrate? Well, they celebrate the two becoming one. And this wedding is no different. In Revelation 21, 22, God is bringing together heaven and earth, God and humanity, to dwell together forever. God will dwell with us and he will be our God. God is bringing together east and west, the nations who come streaming into his kingdom to be reconciled. We're told the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations, of healing humanity and making us God is reconciling good folks and bad folks, right? Like the prodigals and the prostitutes and the Pharisees and the, like God's bringing together the moralists and the murderers, the good folks and the bad folks brought together under nothing but the grace of God and the blood of the Lamb. And God is reconciling weak and strong as he wipes every tear from the eye of the weak and downtrodden. And the strong, the kings of the earth come and they bring their glory to lay at the feet of Christ the King. The future of the world, the hope of the gospel, is diversity in union. And at the center of this image is a wedding. It's just God, all the way back in Genesis 1, he's embedded the signpost. In sex, sexual union is actually designed to point to the hope of the world, of God's union for the world, his reconciling power 
to bring us back together and make us whole in union with him. God loves taking the two and making them one. And one of the reasons I believe God loves doing this is it's found up in who God is. God is diversity and union. We serve a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal communion of holy love. That from before the foundation of the world, the triune God has diversity, uh, particularity, diversity as well as union. It is the one God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is not some abstract math equation, but rather a bold proclamation that God is love who holds together both diversity and union in his very being. God is a relational God. We are made relationally by a relational God for relationship. That's way bigger than just sex. Right? We're made for friendship, intimacy, communion, single or married, wherever we're at, we're made for relationship, but we're made for relationship by a God who is diversity and union. The diversity and union also speaks to the greatness and glory of who Christ is. Christ takes the greatest of polarities, divinity and humanity, and unites them together in his very self. That Jesus, when we are falling into kind of the cavernous chasm of sin and death and the grave, Jesus grabs hold of our humanity and clings it to his chest like Superman to actually unite the frailty of our life with the indestructibility of his. We said earlier, Ephesians 5, Paul says, actually, Christ in the church, the union that he brings us into with him, it's the very thing that sex most ultimately is designed to point to. So Jesus is diversity and union. And not only that, that the two become one, divinity and humanity become one in his flesh, and we become one through his flesh, that the church is diversity and union. You and I, we are one body with many parts, one kingdom of every nation, tribe, and tongue, one spirit animated by one spirit expressing its presence through a diversity of gifts. The calling of the church is to be a community of diversity in union. So whether we're talking about the hope of the world, the future to come, the identity of God, his trinity, Jesus as a divine human, our great mediator, or the identity of the church, diversity in union speaks to the heart of God and the hope of the world. And it starts all the way back in Genesis 1 when God embeds this in the structure of creation. If we had more time, look a little more at Genesis 1 and 2 and a few other ways that this theme shows up. Um, but in short, the image of God poem, um, it's, in short, it says, in the Hebrew, it reads a little more like this. So God created the Adam in his own image. It's talking about the Adam, corporate humanity. God made the human race, humanity, in his image. And the image of God, he created it or him. Uh, him. Him can be a little weird because it's talking about not just one dude. It's talking about the human race. It can be weird because it sounds like you're talking about a washing machine or something, right? Uh, but it's not a thing. It's talking about a person. But the, there's a sense I want to use that language to kind of shock us out of familiarity and go like it, it's saying God created the unified human social body, the Adama, in his image. Male and female, he created them. That We are made diversity in union. It's right there in the image of God poem at the end of Genesis 1. And then Genesis 2, when God creates um, Adam and Eve, if you remember the story, uh, God starts with Adam and then he creates Eve. If you ever wonder why, why didn't God just make Adam from the dirt and Eve from the dirt separately? Why does he make Adam and then pull Eve in a sense from Adam? Well, the logic historically has been that God, there's union. We come from a primordial union. Like we're all in Adam and yet there's diversity that God brings out of that union. And those two are able to come back together into union, the two become one flesh, and are able to bring, give rise to the human 
race, and social value. So we are made from diversity and union and for diversity and union. All right, well, let me sum up a few things here on, on what does this uh, mean for us. Um, a first observation would be, uh, while the authority for this, it's not just like, okay, go out and look in creation, you'll see it. it. Genesis 1 is actually framing things this way, going, this is the structure of creation. The revelation of God's word is, is showing us this is the way God has designed us as male and female within the structure of his world. But it does resonate with global traditions around the world. This has actually been kind of a dominant way throughout history of people understanding the world. You take, um, for example, uh, yin and yang, like the Chinese concept of yin and yang, right? Uh, which has often been used to describe kind of the, the ultimate male and female, right? Um, this is one uh, Chinese Christian scholar kind of observing on uh, the symbolism, but saying that uh, yin, where one represents day, the other night, one earth, the other heaven, uh, and yet they're made with and for one another. She observes, though yin and yang look opposite to each other, they can't exist independently. If there is no yin, yang can't appear alone. Likewise, if there is no yang, yin won't exist. That's the thought of coexistence, complementarity, and reciprocity. They form a perfect unity with two and one. Probably the central um, foundational concept for one of the largest cultures in terms of population in our world is the sense that man and woman, male and female together, are a window into the structure of nature. Uh, similarly, indigenous peoples, where I did a lot of my work and living historically was more in, in some different indigenous communities, but uh, would often around the world talk about like uh, Mother Earth and Father Sky. And they wouldn't, uh, you know, in the Bible, it doesn't tie masculinity to heaven and femininity to the earth in the same way, but you could see how an agricultural society could, right? Like you have uh, the rain and the seed and the sun and the warmth that comes from heaven above, and then in the womb of the earth, it grows and nurtures and gives rise to these crops that come forth and are shared between the sky above and the earth below. It makes sense why, like, societies like, say, the Hindu um, traditional marriage ceremony, where the husband says to the bride uh, at their wedding, like, I am heaven, you are earth, and she responds saying, I am earth, you are heaven. It's not saying that they're saying this, it's not saying that all these things are compatible fully with Christianity or anything like that, right? Um, but it is saying that there's a commonality understood throughout much of history, not just in the Bible, that resonates with the human experience around the world, that there is something in the design of male and female that speaks to a larger structure of creation that we live in. And the authority of God's word and his revelation is actually that God has designed us in this way. And this means, a second thought, kind of the, the implications here would be that there is something sacred and holy to sex. Part of the reason it's holy and sacred is because it speaks to realities that are greater than itself. I think one of the things that we really need today is to kind of reclaim some of the mystery around sex, right? To be again like me and my buddy Elijah running through the hall, you know, running through the halls and the, looking through the rooms of our Heavenly Father's master home and be willing to maybe know again that there's some, to know what we don't know, right? And to be enchanted again by, man, maybe there's more here than we initially thought. I was reading a Rolling Stone interview a while back, and there was a young kid talking about how he's like, man, today uh, sex has become essentially kind of meaningless. He was saying it's just simply become uh, one piece of body touching another piece of body as existentially meaningless as kissing. Right? 
And I read that, and it kind of broke my heart going, like, I feel like we live in a culture today that has stripped sex of its mystery, where it has become nothing more than just the raw physical act. And one of the reasons, I think this is so tragic, is um, that we've lost kind of this greater reality in which we're found, right? That sex speaks to the structure of creation given by God, the nature of salvation that we're designed for in God's heartbeat for the world. That God has actually designed sex as not just its own thing for simply just like physical pleasure or enjoyment. God's actually designed it to reflect something of his heartbeat for the world. And I think this is one of the reasons that it can be such a painful thing when it's abused or misused, right? That if you think back to that uh, diversity and union, next week, one of the things that we'll see is that um, Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, when they're talking about uh, sexual ethics and all, they go back, both of them go back and quote or allude to Genesis 1 and 2 to ground God's heart for sex in creation. And Jesus essentially says the problem with divorce is that it violates the union side of the equation. What God has designed for union, the two have become one flesh, that, that what the two of God has joined together, let man not separate, that the problem with divorce is that it actually shatters this union that God has made. And Paul, as we'll see in Romans 1, uh, says that the, the issue with gay sex or same-sex sexual activity uh, is that it violates the diversity side of the equation goes back to Genesis 1 as well and draws on that backdrop to say that there's a diversity that this was designed for. And in essence, it's like it's shattering the icon. And I think when we look bigger picture, like adultery, like the problem with adultery, why it's so painful and so horrific, it violates the reflection and image of the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness to his people, that he's with us. God is not going anywhere. He's committed to us. He is faithful. We can bank on his faithfulness. We can rely on him. And adultery breaks the covenant. It fails to reflect the faithfulness of God. If you think of uh, premarital sex or cohabitation, I think one of the problems there is uh, it violates covenant on the other side. If, if adultery uh, breaks the covenant, premarital sex refuses to enter covenant. Right? It fails to reflect the covenantal nature of God was boldly and publicly committed. God commits to us before he unites with us, even at the extent of laying down his life for us. When this is how committed I am to you. This is how the extent to which I'm not going anywhere. This is the extent I'm willing to go to be with you is to hell and back. So part of the power of sex, I think our hope for the next few weeks is um, not just that we learn hey, what the gospel says about sex, but in some ways also what sex, God has designed sex to say about the gospel, that there is something sacred and holy here to be treated with reverence because it speaks to greater things that God has designed from his heartbeat for the world. Final thought uh, to wrap this up for tonight. I mean, I'd love to leave us with just this phrase, uh, the beauty of Christian sexual ethics. Right? The beauty of Christian sexual ethics. And this is what I mean. I think often when we think about what God has to say about sex, we often um, focus on this conversation, and rightly so, the truth lens. What does God say? And that's foundational. We want to look this week, the next few weeks, what does God say about this? But I think sometimes we can look only through that lens, and we can also miss the 
equally vitally important lenses of beauty and goodness. That God is true, good, and beautiful in his character. Everything that God does is good and right and beautiful for his world. And so I think part of the invitation, hopefully something that we kind of see tonight, is that God has actually designed, this is something that is holy and is good and is beautiful, and it speaks to these greater realities of the goodness of God, the goodness of creation, the heartbeat that God has for union with us as his people. All right, would you join me in prayer? God, thank you that you are committed to us, Father, that you love us so much that you would go to any extent, God, to be with us. I thank you that you have designed sex, God, something that um, can be just a loaded conversation in our culture today, God, uh, and yet, God, you have designed it as something beautiful, Lord, that I believe speaks to your heartbeat for the world. Uh, God, I thank you, God, for all of us in this room tonight, where, wherever we're coming from, Lord, I pray, God, that in our singleness or in our marriage, God, in our the desires of our heart and the actions of our lives, God, that we would treat both our sexed identity as a man or a woman, God, and God, that we would treat uh, God, the reality of sex, a world, God, with the sacred reverence and holiness, God, that you've invested in it, Lord. God, thank you that you have made us in a beautiful world, Lord, one of these pairs, heaven and earth, land and sea, night and day. God, they speak to you as the grand artist who have designed us for the beauty of the world that you've made. Lord, and I, I just ask, God, that as we step into this next few weeks, God, that we would be captivated by your beauty, God, by your goodness, and by your heart for us, Lord. God, I thank you that, um, man, God, I just, uh, my heart is drawn right now, I think, just to, to say even a prayer, Lord, that I feel like maybe there are some of us, Lord, who have felt like uh, our, we live in a culture that says we need to have sex in order to have a meaningful existence. And God, I just want to confront that lie right now. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would confront that in us for those of us who have maybe felt or walked with a, a weight of just kind of our culture's lie there. We have to, and uh, just the reality, God, that we can have the reality without the sign, God. We can have the movie without the sneak preview, God. We, have, we can have the thing that you've designed sex to point to, which is union with you, God, with or without marriage, Lord. God, I thank you that, um, and you've designed us for life with yourself, God. And God, some of the loneliest people I know are married, God. I, I pray for those who are married and in loneliness and all, God. And uh, God, some of the folks I know who are single, who have, think back in college, were having the most sex, God, were some of the loneliest people I know as well, God. And so I pray, God, that we would confront the lie in our culture, Lord, in our own lives, that looks to sex for meaning or satisfaction or whatever, God, but that ultimately, Lord, we would pursue it with the reverence and the holiness of Jesus, ultimately following you and wanting union with you, Christ, as your church above all else, and that we would live lives that reflect your sacred desire for our lives, for our bodies, for our world. Jesus, in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.